Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. To everything, there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. In the 1980s, Charlie Peacock had a fairly popular song and it began, Time is a gift of love and grace. Without time, there'd be no time to change. Over and over again in this particular passage, the preacher brings up the subject of time. The secret of time, but also the, the, what's the word that I'm looking for? The relentlessness of time. The preacher is going to broadly look in chapter three at categories in verses one through eight and conclusions in in verses nine through eleven, looking at events from, again, an earthly perspective and then a heavenly perspective in verses 15 through 21. By the way, we're going to start to gather in now the book of Ecclesiastes in the next several chapters. The preacher is going to present the idea that God has a purpose for our lives. In chapter three, that God gives wealth according to his will in chapters four through six, that God's wisdom can guide us through our life in chapters seven through ten. As a matter of fact, Warren Wearsby outlines this chapter, chapter three, look up. God orders time in verses one through eight. Look within. Eternity is in your heart in verses nine through fourteen. Look ahead because death is coming to all in verses 15 through 22. So the preacher is going to invite us, invite the reader to think about and consider time, to think about and consider eternity, to think about and consider death. And eventually he's going to ask us to think about and consider suffering. Now, for many, this section of scripture began life as a song by Pete Seeger. And by the way, Pete Seeger wrote the song word for word from the 1611 version of the King James Bible. It became popularized by the birds. And one of the original members of the birds was a guy named David Crosby. David Crosby would later join a group called Buffalo Springfield that was formed by Richie Furey and... um, a guy named Souther. Now, Richie Furey and the band would break up and they would form Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. And Richie Furey would form a group called Poco. But, but they all have these rich roots, if you will, in, in that countercultural generation. As a matter of fact, when Pete wrote this song, he donated 45% of the proceeds to the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. It was an, a humanitarian relief orga- organization dedicated to providing funds to help resolve the Middle East conflict between the Jews and the Palestinians. And the reason why he said he only donated 45% is he said, well, I added six words to the song and I did write the music. Solomon wrote the poem in a series of 14 couplets and 28 statements. 14 are negative, 14 are positive, and they fall into three broad categories. The first 
is in part a description of the effects of time on our bodies in verses one through three. The second has a focus on the effect of time on our soul in verses four and five. And the third has an effect of time on our spirit in verses six through eight. I read that on Veterans Day, November 11th, 1963, John F. Kennedy paid a visit and respect to Arlington Cemetery. And while gazing over the rolling hills and the stone monuments on that day, he was heard saying, this place is so beautiful, I think that I could stay here forever. Within two weeks, Kennedy returned in a flag-draped coffin. And he was buried beneath an eternal flame. And it is said by every major biographer of Kennedy that his favorite portion of the book of the Bible was Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. I think that perhaps he was searching for a little bit of heaven on earth. What was it about this particular passage that had such a powerful influence on that young president? In verse 1, it says, to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. You know, we live in an ordered universe with times and seasons. We live by schedules and clocks. We live by day timers. We all have the same amount of time and on any given day, but we order our lives around time. My whole world is built around Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and how I separate time to do this specific task or that specific task. And each and every one of us is allotted a specific period of time. Have you ever stopped to consider that God has given you the exact amount of time that you need in order to accomplish everything that he's asked you to do? The Bible teaches that how we spend our time is significant. It becomes a reflection of who you are and what you believe. How do you spend your time? Do you waste time? What is it that you accomplish? How is it that you invest it? A popular new item on the Internet that I've already talked about is the death clock. And I went to the death clock and it averages how much time you allegedly have left based on your age, based on your health, based on your body weight index. And so I checked in again. And according to it, based on my current circumstances, I have 600 million seconds left, give or take an hour or two. So I think often about what I should do with my time. Webster's Dictionary defines time as, quote, the measurable period during which an action, a process or a condition exists or continues to exist. So what makes time so important? Time seems to have the quality of slipping into the past and ceasing to exist. We can't at least now go back in time. Moments seem to happen only once. They seem unrepeatable, even though the sun comes up and the sun goes down and the planet circles and it goes around the sun in our galaxy. We can repeat the same actions, but the time is gone. We can get up every morning. We can have the same cup of coffee and the same piece of bread. But physicists argue whether or not time can slow down or speed up. It appears to accelerate the older you get. This year, the founder of Jews for Jesus, Moishe Rosen, died. At age 77, he wrote, I can no longer indulge the illusion that I will die young. When will time end? How will it end? Clearly, if time had a beginning, it'll have an end. 
With the absence of time comes the eternal state. And it would appear that with the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars, when you read in Genesis chapter one, the first day and the second day and the third day that God created space and time occupied that space. When time comes to a halt, clearly eternity is set in motion. But I'm going to suggest something to you that eternity exists. And has always existed. Because a self-existent God has always existed. And not only are there times and seasons on a planet, but there are times and seasons in a life. And you might be at the beginning of that season, or you might be in the middle of that season, or you might be at the end of that season. The Bible teaches that not only did God order the beginning, but this might come as a shock and a surprise to you, but he will orchestrate the end and he will orchestrate the times and the seasons. And the Bible teaches that he's at work in the universe and he's at work on the planet and he's at work in your life. And clearly, you always have a couple of choices to cooperate with that plan or not cooperate. Everything is and will be according to all that God has planned. In verse 2 it says, there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted. We might read verse 2, a time to be born, a time to give birth. Now clearly we can't choose to be born. Did any of you choose? Did you... Do you remember back in time and space being in a particular place going, I'm going to be born in the 1940s. I'm going to be born in the 1950s. I'm going to be born in the 1960s or 70s to that particular place, to that particular time, to those particular people. And admit it, you, if you had your choice, you would, have, you would have picked Bill Gates maybe and say, look, I want my family to be multi-billionaires. I want all of, no pain, no problems, no issues. Clearly, by the way, there are people who believe that they can determine that. There are people who actually believe that you pre-exist in some sort of circumstance and that you get to pick the time, place, and, and circumstances of your birth, but there's no evidence to support that. It would appear that life and death are punctuated by the presence of God, that your life begins when a sovereign God allows it to begin, and it ends when a sovereign God allows it to cease to exist and that he is present and active. He is not passive or absent. And there seems to be a great deal of evidence that we exist because that's exactly what God wants. We live in a world where. You read that text, a time to be born, and there are people who practice infanticide or abortion or genocide. And because human beings can practice birth control or or infanticide or orchestrate surrogacy, we somehow think that we are in control of the process of what it means to be born and what it means to be die, to die. But nothing could be further from the truth. Solomon suggests that human beings may participate in a process that God has allowed, but human life and human death are not cosmic accidents. And there are some people who entertain the notion that they're here quite by accident. Maybe you've even prayed a prayer. Lord, why did you make me? Why did you put me in the place that you put me in? I saw a picture posted at USA Today. There was a man carrying a placard. The placard read, God doesn't exist. Get over it. And I thought, can you imagine having a placard that read, God is in control. Get used to it. We don't necessarily have to actually 
join a crusade necessarily. But the truth is, that is exactly what the Bible teaches. God is in control. Get used to it. You can find that, by the way, in Genesis chapter 29, verses 31 through 30. Joshua chapter 24, verse 3. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Even though there is numerous, numerous biblical citations to support the idea that there's a real God and he's in control of the universe. I want to read to you Psalm 113, verse 9. It says he grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. In Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, it says, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. What book is that? What book is that? Is that a book in heaven? Is that a book that exists in the mind of God? Is that a book that biologically exists and you and I call it a genetic code? Is the circumstances of who you are and when you're going to be born and when you're going to die, is it wound up like a coil in every single molecule of your body? Or at least in the DNA molecules. Did God make you and prepare you in such a way that you would be born and you would live in exactly the circumstances that you find yourself in? Can we foolishly hasten our day of death? If the news is any indication... My heart broke when I heard the news of the Denver Bronco who died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. We don't know the circumstances of his life or his mental state. What brings a person to a point where they're in such pain and they're in such darkness and they're in such emptiness and they're in such loneliness that they would hasten the day of their death. We may foolishly be able to hasten the day of death, but let me ask you this. Can we prevent our death from happening? What do you think the answer is? There are people who have tried, huh? They cut their head off and they freeze it in a cryogenic chamber. There was a man who literally spit tens of millions of dollars in order to have his body frozen and the family contested it in court in the hopes that they could say, look, dad is dead. He's dead. He's dead. Get used to it. But the truth is, the Bible seems to indicate that there might be circumstances that we can extend life if God wills it. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 38, the king Hezekiah wept bitterly when God told him that he was going to die. And as he wept bitterly, the Lord imparted to him 15 additional years. A careful reading of the book of Isaiah. And you're going to discover something. Hezekiah would have been a lot better off if he would have just simply submitted to God's plans and purposes. In Psalm 139, verse 16, it says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book. The man who's currently the oldest man alive is 114 years old. It is said that at the age of 105, he went into a bank and asked for a five year certificate of deposit. That's exactly what the bank did. They laughed. You can imagine their surprise when he walked in the door and he redeemed his certificate. The Jewish calendar was based on a harvest. 
And so when it says a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up. For the Jew and for the Jewish people and for that particular society, all of life surrounded the harvest circumstances. Life began and continued with the planting and the harvesting of crops. It's found in Leviticus chapter 23. We know that human beings can sow and plant. But we also know that it's God who gives the increase. Paul will talk about it in the New Testament. One person plants and another person sows. But ultimately, it is God who gives the increase. And by the way, plucking can refer either to the reaping of a crop or even the pulling of unproductive plants. Some of you grew up on a farm. And some of you know the truth that a successful farmer knows that nature works for him only if he works with nature. That there are certain principles that if you plant and you water, you will reap. But there are circumstances and you have to cooperate with the process. In verse 3, it says a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. By the way, when it says a time to kill, does that mean a time for war? No, because that's talked about later. Does this mean self-defense? Probably not. What would cause us to think that? Where it says a time to kill, and remember the contrast, a time to heal, it probably refers to times of catastrophe and plague and sickness in the land. Are there times when an earthquake comes and 150 or 200,000 people are die instantly, or a tsunami rocks the Indian Ocean and 150,000 people die in a matter of 90 seconds? Is there catastrophe? Is there plague? Is there sickness? And how do we account for the fact that some people live and some people die? Some people survive and other people don't. Life seems strangely caught between a slaughterhouse and a hospital, between a battlefield and a, and a first aid station. Life seems suspiciously caught between murder and medicine, between killers and healers. So why does God permit some to die from disease and plague? Why does God allow other people to survive and recover? How are we to explain it? Clearly, we thank God for doctors and nurses and health professionals. There seems to be a time to heal. And that God can use supernatural circumstances. That God can use men and women. It's interesting to me that God can use medicine and miracles. There's an ebb and there's a flow and there seems to be a circumstance, a rhythm, if you will. And it surrounds the body. That no matter how much we try and no matter how much we purchase anti-aging cosmetics, time still seems to take its toll. In verse 4 it says a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And it's interesting that when Solomon writes that a time to weep and a time to laugh, because there are some people who think that they're impervious to life's tragedies and horrors, and they stiffly say, I don't cry. But we do. Even if you don't remember. That probably the day that you were born, you were slapped in a particular place. And air filled your lungs. I think I'm glad that there's a time to weep because we can't escape the hurts and horrors of life. We seem to learn best from affliction. 
And because we seem to learn best from affliction, that sometimes tears are exactly what's needed in our life. But we thank God that life isn't simply an endless parade of tears, an endless parade of pain, an endless parade of setbacks. And for many, many people, that is their life. Their life is one crisis, one affliction, one painful problem, one bad circumstance after another. And we thank God that there are times of refreshment. And there are times of needed laughter. We live in a world where if you live long enough, someone you love will die. And that's why it says there's a time to mourn. And if you live long enough and have children, and if those children have children, then there's going to be a time of joy. Yes, I see you. It's my grandchild back there. See? Hi, Juliana. Grandpa loves you. Grandchildren are God's way of saying, thank you for not killing your children. They're the light at the end of the tunnel. They're a source of joy. In verse 5, where it says there's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Part of what you have to do is see the picture of Israel. And by the way, Israel is a place where it is covered with rocks. It is covered with stones almost everywhere you go. If you ever have an opportunity to go on a trip to Israel with us, and by the way, I'm going in March, and you you can still go if you want. But if you go to Israel, you can go from the southern end to the northern end and everywhere in between, and you're going to find rocks everywhere. As a matter of fact, the story is told by the guides that when God gave stones to the angels, he told them to distribute them all around the world. And when they hit the Mediterranean, they tripped and they dropped most of their rocks in Israel. And because the place is filled with stones, farmers fight a constant battle. They're constantly clearing away the stones in order to plant. And by the way, if you wanted to hurt your enemy in the Old Testament times and even now, you fill his field with stones. In other words, if you want to ruin their crop, what you would do is you would secretly go into their fields and begin to put rocks everywhere in order to destroy or at least limit the crops. So the place is filled with stones. But even the Lord will use rocks for his own good and for our glory. And so when the preacher says there's a time to cast away stones. And there's a time to gather stones. He understands something that you can clear a field, you can cut the stone and with the stone, you can build walls and you can build temples. Everything that has any kind of lasting value in Israel is quarried from a rock and then it is constructed in the form of stones. And by the way, they would use stones to build the temple. But stones can also be picked up and hurled in hatred, can't it? As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, you'll see a woman in John chapter 8 taken in adultery. And you'll remember that they bring her to Jesus. And as they bring her to Jesus, they say, Rabbi, according to the law, she should be stoned. What say you? And remember, they ask him to, to trap him. And you'll remember he stoops down into the ground and he begins to write. And as he begins to write, by the way, that's the only New Testament citation that has Jesus writing anything. He looks up from his writing and he says, you who are without sin, let you cast the first stone. If your enemy fills your land with stones. The first temptation is to hurl the stone back at them. But the Bible gives us permission to be creative. We can take rocks and we can build things with those rocks. 
And so the preacher says there's a time to embrace and there's a time to refrain from embracing. And you've got to understand the Middle Eastern culture. It's not just simply hugging or not hugging. In the Middle East, people weren't shy about showing emotion. In the Middle East, when you meet and you come together and there is mutual friendship and fellowship, they throw their arms around you and they kiss you profusely. They hug you and they kiss you and they'll laugh with you and they will cry with you. And so typically when it says a time to embrace, we could even translate this. There's a time to say hello. And you know the rest. There's a time to say, what do you think? Goodbye. I think that that's what it means. There's a time to say hello and there's a time to say goodbye. There's a time to embrace and there's a time not to embrace. And by the way, there is a wicked form of embracing. And the wicked form was to slap someone. By the way, in the Middle East, your face is the thing that reveals honor and dignity. And there are few things more humiliating in the Middle East than if someone takes their hand and they slap your face. It isn't just a. It isn't just an assault, if you will. It's an assault on dignity and degradation and dishonor. And so the writer says, there's a time to gain and there's a time to lose. There's a time to keep and a time to throw away. You should circle this verse. This verse is biblical proof for Craigslist and for classified ads. As a matter of fact, you could quite possibly translate this verse. There's a time to search. And then there's a time to give up the search. Let me ask you a question. Would you characterize yourself as a realist or a pessimist or an optimist? In other words, when you begin to think about your own life and your own circumstances, how do you characterize yourself as a person who gets or a person who gives or a person who keeps or a person who takes? You know, I think that there are times in our life where we are all of those and none of those. We have goals. We have dreams. We chase those dreams. We work hard to try to achieve those dreams. But there's a time when we close the book. There's a time when we abandon the search. There's a time when we want to know the facts. And there's a time when we face the facts. I remember... A fairly elderly person giving my friend a very expensive camera. He said, I spent the first half of my life getting things and I'm spending the last half of my life getting rid of them. I think this is true. Much of our life is spent in renewals. It's, it's spent in keeping. It's spent in saving. It's spent in making over. It's spent in painting and then repainting. It's spent in remodeling and changing. We live in a world where some things are so yesterday or retro. And some things are so today or contemporary. But have you noticed how quickly today becomes tomorrow and tomorrow becomes today? What's past is past. What's present is present. What's in is out. Guess what's happening for those of you who are old enough to remember? Bell bottoms are coming back. You know what else is coming back? Those leg warmers. They're coming back. There's certain things that should never come back. Like the mullet. There's never a good reason to have one, ever, in any age or dispensation. <laughs> it's interesting to, to me how something becomes vintage, is now current, and current is stale. And stale means ready for a change. We want the past, we want the present, we want the future. You know what I wish? I wish my mom had not destroyed my very first 
copy of the X-Men. She would take my comics and throw them out. How could she know that they would be worth a fortune today? In verse 7, it says there's a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak. By the way, in verse 7, when it says a time to tear, you have to understand something. Remember, we're going from the effects of time on the body and now the effects of time on the soul. When it talks about a time to tear, remember, Jewish people would tear their clothes to express profound emotion in times of rage, in times of grief, in times of deep repentance, in times of sorrow. And so I think in verse 7, part of the application might be that when it's talking about tearing, it's talking about a time to express deeply felt and deeply held feelings. And remember, sewing is mending. I don't think it's just simply about tearing your clothes and fixing your clothes. It's not simply about keeping a sewing kit. When things are torn, they are torn. And when things are torn, sometimes they need to be fixed. As a matter of fact, in Ezra chapter 9, verse 5, it speaks, Ezra writes, and he says, At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garments and my robe, I fell on my knees, and I spread out my hands to the Lord God of heaven. In other words, there's a time of deep Profound repentance and sorrow. And sometimes there is exactly the right time to express that grief, express that repentance, express that sorrow. And this is a time to keep silent and a time to speak. Clearly, we know that there is such a thing. The challenge is, well, when is that time? When is the best time to keep silent? When is the best time to keep your mouth shut? What do you think? Most of the time is a very good guess. Clearly, one of the times to keep silent is when we don't know the facts. Is it helpful to pool our ignorance? Is that helpful, really? Is it helpful to speak when you are unsure of the information? Is it helpful to speak when someone has whispered something in confidence that's linked to character? Are there times when it is absolutely, positively, unequivocally, best to keep your mouth shut? I think that the answer is yes. Do you realize that it even happened in the New Testament? When Herod brought Jesus before him in trial and he insisted that Jesus speak to him, you'll notice that, Herod, that Jesus didn't speak a word. Why? Because he never listened to Jesus in the first place. Remember when he says, you tell that fox. When they asked if Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead. Are you the Christ? Are you the Lord? Hey, if you're the Christ and you're the Lord, show me a miracle. Just like the, the, the popular song. Show me that you're no fool. What could cross my swimming pool? And Jesus didn't have anything to say to him. You know, when Jesus clearly doesn't have anything to say to someone, it's usually when he's had plenty to say and whatever he said has been completely ignored. You know, there's no more dangerous time in your life than when you stop hearing from God. When you cry out to him and he has nothing to say to you. But when certain issues are at stake, when silence brings death, when silence is interpreted as acceptance, then speaking becomes not only appropriate and necessary, but even compulsory. There's a time to keep silent, but there comes 
a time that you must speak. And you have to be willing to embrace the consequences. I think that that's what the New Testament means when it says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. There comes a time when love and loyalty to Jesus becomes absolutely paramount. In verse 8 it says, there's a time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. And most Christians in particular have absolutely no problem with the opening statement, a time to love. Of course there's a time to love. Over and over again, the Bible speaks of loving God and loving your neighbor and loving each other and, and being kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another. But they get to the next part of time to hate and they think there's no good time to hate. By the way, what do you think that means? A time to love and a time to hate. What does that mean? Let me ask you a question. Do you think God hates sin? The Bible seems to indicate that. Over and over and over again, the Bible says that he loves righteousness and he hates sin. I think people ask the wrong question. When they see a, a, a verse or a portion of the verse and a time to hate, they ask the question, well, who is it that I should hate? But I think that that's the wrong question. Clearly, we should hate sin, but it's not who should I hate. It's what should I hate? We should love what is good. We should hate injustice. We should hate the kind of prejudice that hides the character of God and the gospel of Jesus from people who need his love and grace and mercy and hope. And if you give yourself permission to embrace injustice and embrace the kind of prejudice that hides the character of God and the gospel of Jesus from people who need it, then you will not be effective in the gifts and callings that God has placed in your life. There's a clue that's given to us in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. It says, these six things God hates. Yes, seven things are an abomination to him. A proud look. Pause. If in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through, 16 through 18, it says that these things God hates, these things are what, we, what you and I should call celestial hate crimes. God hates a proud look. By the way, where does a proud look typically occur? You know the answer. It's on a proud face. If a proud look occurs on a proud face, do you think that the proud look on the proud face probably comes from a heart that's filled with pride? Does the heart send a signal to the face and then it has a particular appearance? By the way, if God hates sinful pride, and remember, I think that the proud look comes from a prideful heart, and the, remember, the prideful heart is the heart that delights in not trusting God and not depending upon God. If I were to actually try to define the word pride to the best of my ability, I would do it with two words, self-sufficiency. In other words, the root of pride is I don't need God and I don't need you. I don't need anyone and I don't need anything. So what is it about a proud look that takes place on a proud face from a proud heart that God mostly despises? And again, it's rooted and grounded in the fact that this person wants to detach from and not rely on God. So, by the way, if God hates pride, what do you suppose... He wants you to do. Yeah, hate pride. It says a lying tongue. If God despises dishonesty, then what do you suppose our position should be? And by the way, why, what is it about dishonesty that God hates so much? 
Let me just be helpful here for just a moment. Remember what dishonesty is. It's an assault on the truth. By the way, do you think God loves the truth? I think you're right. God loves the truth and he hates a lie. And by the way, if you read the New Testament fairly, who's the author of deceit? Satan. The Bible says that the devil is a liar and that he's the father of all lies. And by the way, how does Satan express that lie? The, the greatest expression of the lie is you don't need God and you don't want God. And if anything, you are God. So how does Satan worship? He worships deceit. Do you realize that when you lie, you're worshiping Satan? Remember, if worship is a meaningful word, if worship means I love you, Lord, I glorify you, Lord, I love you, I honor you, I value you, then deceit has to be an expression of I love you, Satan, I value you, Satan, I care about what you care about and I do what you do. The truth. Most of us don't hate pride and we don't hate deceit. In Proverbs 6, it says, And hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imagination, feet that are swift to running and mischief, a false witness that speaks lies and sows discord among the brethren. There's a lot of things that God hates. And we're called on to hate what he hates, to love what he loves. I hate war. And I love peace. I hate bondage, and I love freedom. I hate tyranny, but I'll be honest with you, I also hate tyrants. And when tyranny takes my freedom and dissolves my God-given rights, I resist and oppose tyrants. But the greatest threat isn't a political tyrant. It is not a social tyrant. The greatest threat is sin. The greatest threat is sin. And the greatest enemy continues to be Satan. And if, if sin is the greatest threat to freedom... then salvation has to be the greatest antidote and the greatest provision. The greatest provision that has been made has been made in Christ Jesus the Lord. And by the way, when Pete Seeger set this poem to music, he set it to music because John F. Kennedy had been assassinated and this was his favorite piece of scripture. And Pete Seeger believed that this was the time for peace. And for my generation and a generation that believed contemporary music was the soundtrack for the anti-war movement, Seeger added the words, a time of peace. And I swear it's not too late. But remember what the kind of peace that they were looking for. The absence of war, the absence of hate, the promotion of unity, sensibility. But it wasn't a unity and a sensibility based on having a right relationship with God. And by the way, can there be peace with the presence of sin? Can we realistically make peace with sin and expect peace with God? I think that the answer is no. There was a man named Peter Mullenberg. He was an Anglican priest. And he pastored a church in Virginia in 1774. And he was elected to the Virginia legislature and he was present at St. John's Church in Richmond when Patrick Henry gave his famous speech. You know the line, give me liberty or give me death. And Peter was so moved that he promptly joined George Washington's army. And on a bitter, sad Sunday morning, he resigned as the pastor of his church and he gave a farewell sermon. 
Do you know what he preached? Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Verses 1 through 8. He said, To everything there's a season, and a time, and a purpose under heaven. And he looked up at his congregation and he said, There's a time to preach. And there's a time to pray. There's a time to fight. And that time has now come. And he took off his Anglican robe and underneath the robe was the uniform of a continental soldier. A colonel. He recruited other men from the church and they became known as the German regiment under his command. And someone asked me if the revolution was an act of theological impropriety. Should America have suffered and submitted to the English crown? Was it right to throw off the yoke of bondage? Was it right to just assume the status of slave and representation and taxation without representation should have of America have just simply submitted to the English crown? And I got to tell you something. The question is way harder than you might imagine. We can debate the theological nuances of whether or not we should have entered into the Revolutionary War. But in the end, we did, didn't we? The providence of God established America. The providence of God continued with America. The providence of God continues to exist. And this becomes part of the point. For the preacher, as he sees the circumstances and as he writes about the reality that there is a God and that God is in control, that the sovereignty of God, the providence of God is at work, birth and death, sowing and harvest, joy and sorrow, acquiring and losing, speech and silence, war and peace. The point that is being made is that everything has an appointment with God. And I wish I could say that every time I should have been silent, I spoke. Or every time I spoke, I should have been silent. And I have it down to an art form. That's just simply not true. But I know that this is true. That God is sovereign and that God is faithful and that God is in control and that because God is sovereign and God is faithful and God is in control, that God is sovereign and God is faithful and God is in control in the lives of nations. God is faithful. God is sovereign. God is in control and God is faithful and God is sovereign and God is in control of your life. And that our lives must reflect his pace and his rhythm and his wisdom. And that running through the moments of our life and running through the days of our life and running through the years of our life. That the seasons of life and the circumstances of life, that God is loving and powerful and faithful and present in every season of our life. There was a very famous hymn that was sung during the time of the Revolutionary War. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy and love. And that's the challenge. To everything there's a season. A sovereign, loving, in control God at birth and death. To everything there is a time and a place. But I'm going to suggest to you that there is no time and no place for sin. And rebellion against God. By the way, is there ever a good time to rebel against God? 
Is there ever a good time to sin against God? Is there ever a good time to declare independence from God? You see, this is the key. This is the key to understanding this passage as we go forward. The key isn't that we have a circumstance problem. We have a God problem. Because we have either an inaccurate or an incomplete or an unbiblical view of God. Clearly, there are people who don't believe in God. Some people believe in God, but they ask the question, is the God of the Bible really God? Is the God of the Bible perfect and good? Is the God of the Bible perfect and powerful? Today, on my radio program, a person asked me a question about the genocide in the Old Testament and how I could possibly condone the fact that God ordered a genocide of the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Amalekites, and the Pepsi-lites. And I said, I want you to read the rest of the passage where he orders the genocide. He says, I'm ordering you to do this so that you won't adopt their gods and embrace, embrace their wickedness and do what they're doing. And by the way, the Israeli people ignore God's command. They didn't wipe out their enemies. And the circumstances and the consequences happened just like God said they would. But here's the key. Here's the key. Here's the key to understanding the issue. It isn't the answer of why did it happen. The, the key to answering the question is, can you trust a God that you don't know everything about and that you don't understand all of the consequences in every life and every circumstance and the unfolding of history in order to make the decisions that God makes? You would have to have the mind of God and know everything that God knows. By the way, do you know everything that God knows? Do you, are you willing to concede that you have an imperfect and incomplete understanding of stuff? But the moment you entertain the notion that the Bible is true, that God does not have an imperfect and incomplete understanding, but that he has a perfect and a complete understanding, there's the very next issue that you're going to have to struggle with. Can I trust him? Can I trust him in life and in death? Can I trust him in the seasons of my life? Can I trust him? There are people who don't believe that God is in control. There are people who believe that he isn't in control and that we have to navigate the waters of our own circumstances with our own wits and our own resources. Some people believe in a God who, when you pray to him, his answer is, well, that's not my job because God helps those who help themselves. But Solomon presents a God who is in control of life and death, of time and space, that birth and death are appointments, that sowing and reaping are appointments, that God sets boundaries on the seasons, that we are discomforted when we read that there's a time to kill and a time to heal. We live in a world where both the universe and our body is in a state of decay, and you would not like it if someone says to you that every cell in your body is replaced every seven years and that cancer cells and infection cells and worn out cells have to be put to death in order for living cells to come back to life. We are grateful when unwanted cancer cells die. We build up in our youth and we tear down when we're old. Someone once said, we know that we're getting older when the type gets smaller, the steps get higher, the voices get softer, the muscles get weaker, and our medicine chest gets larger. There really is a time to live. And there really is a time to die. My granddaughter said, Grandpa, do you realize if you were a dog, you would already be dead? I said, that's true. That's true. Someday she's going to be somebody's grandma. And I hope she remembers. 
no matter what stage you are, no matter what season you are. God has set the appointments. God has set the boundaries. God has drawn the lines. God has given the provision. And ultimately, 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 each and every one of us are going to be faced with the ultimate question. Will I love him and will I trust him? In the season of the time that I find myself. With my body. With my soul. With my spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. To everything. There is a season. And a time. For every purpose under heaven. Lord we don't always understand. The ebb and the flow. We don't always understand the season. We don't always accurately interpret and then apply the circumstance. But Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom. And Lord, we also pray that you will create in our hearts the desire not simply to know you, but to love you and to trust you. When we're faced with a season, that we don't necessarily welcome. Or when we make the mistake and we speak when we should have been silent or we remain silent when we should have spoken up. And Lord, if ever there was a time, if ever there was a time, if ever there was a time to turn from sin, to repent of sin, to repent of unbelief, to embrace eternal life that's found only in Jesus Christ, the time is now. Lord, we pray that you would extend that invitation and that hearts would be open and willing to love you and to trust you so that they could experience love and joy and peace. Because there's never a time to tolerate sin in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.